Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with Andy Armstrong. Armstrong began his feature film career as an assistant director on Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, and then went on to perform similar duties on terrific films like The Dresser and Hope and Glory. He is also a highly esteemed stunt coordinator and has worked on some of the most beloved films of the past 35 years. What, what fascinates me is that I mean, looking at your your resume here, that Barry Lyndon was really one of the, if not the first, one of the first credits that you you have. I'm, I'm wondering how that opportunity came about for you. Certainly, one of the first big movies. Um, um, you know, I've, I've had a quite an odd career. As uh, you know, I came into the, the business as a as a stuntman, as a motorcycle and car specialist, as a, as a pretty well as a as a kid. I used to do tricks. And then uh, felt that I wouldn't be able to make a living doing just doing those particular stunts. So I I uh, uh, went into the production side of filmmaking, and uh, in, in order to become a assistant director, I uh, I tried to get uh, work with the biggest named assistant directors of the day, which were in, in those days was uh, David Tomlin, who was the original assistant director on Barry Lyndon, and mm-hmm. his second assistant, which is Michael Stevenson, who is still a friend to this day. Who, and, you know, he, goes, he dates back to Lawrence of Arabia. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I sort of aimed high to meet these guys, and they took a liking to me, and I, uh, I came on board as a, as a junior, as a third assistant, you know. As a third assistant director on the show, on that, and that was the show that they were doing. Were you aware? I'm, I'm sure you were aware of Mr. Kubrick before. I mean, you oh, yeah. you were aware I, of his I, status. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, uh, and certainly the you know the whole film had that had that larger than life air about it, um, mm-hmm. and with some very colourful characters on there. You know, Ken Adam was production designer, and John Alcott was was DP and um, it was a uh, it, yeah, it was a very high profile picture and uh, I I was on for the first um, large part of it uh, about 17 weeks in one location in uh, in Ireland and then later the film moved to England and I actually went off to do a, an, another film where I where I uh, I was sort of rapidly trying to advanced my career so mm-hmm. I'd uh, taken another show uh, taken another film when we came back because uh, Warner Brothers at, at the time had uh, had some serious doubts about the movie and so they they uh, closed production down for several weeks moved it from Ireland it was also the time of the IRA doing a lot of terrorist acts in Ireland and, and right. uh, among his, uh, many other uh, oddities Stanley was extremely paranoid uh, and and was 
was very scared of the whole IRA and the you know uh, kidnapping and hostage and uh, terrorism situation. So that's what led to the the location being moved from uh, Ireland to England after after about uh, 17 weeks or so of shooting, and uh, the picture was already in at that time. You know, it was it was already well over schedule and well over budget and uh, um, you know, a lot of scenes were um you know, that had been postponed and changed and it was it was a it was an interesting for a young a young assistant to come into the movie to come into the movie business for that to to be one of your early movies is was quite unique because it was a very um a very troubled picture in that it was uh it had a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of egos, a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of odd incidents, incidences that happened, and a lot of uh, all sorts of things that, were bomb- that bombarded it, that made it go longer and bigger and everything mm-hmm. else. And so it was, it was, it was a, there was a lot of thought at the time that it would never be finished, but uh, obviously it did get finished eventually. And you know, there was there was a lot of feeling at some stage that Ryan O'Neill was miscast and uh, it was just a very, very large um, slightly out of control movie and, and yeah. but largely because of uh, a lot, well a lot, a lot anyway because of uh, Stanley would change his mind a lot so that every every day there would be at least two or three different bull sheets and an entire crew, a company that was huge would wait to see if, depending on weather and light, whether we'd go to location A, B, C, or whether there'd be a weather cover set and we'd go inside or whatever. You know, and it, would all, it would all be dependent on light and um, uh, weather conditions and uh, you know one or two other factors. But mostly that because he, he, he wanted to, he wanted the film really to be this this, which it is in certain ways. There's a lot of a lot of Beautiful images of uh, that look like watercolors, or look like oil paintings, more like really. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, but that obviously caused, you know, it's a it's a it's a massive enterprise getting a huge company like that on the road every morning. But then to have tons of variations where you might have ten different actors and only three of them are in this scene, the other two are in this scene. Uh, the other, you know, three or four are in this scene, and some of them may overlap. So it'd be a question of when you got the, when you, you know, before the days of cell phones and things. So it's uh, you know everyone waiting at a ho- at, you know, half a dozen hotels waiting to get the call to see which location would be the one we'd go to. And sometimes there'd be such chaos in the mornings that you'd turn up at one location, half the crew and cast have gone to another location, and it would be. <laughs> It would be midday before everyone got together. Wow. I, I'm sure that uh, on a lot of his films, though, uh, there would come a point in time when when the talent involved would say, are we ever going to finish this? Because I think, because, I think that, happened, yeah. that, that happened by about by about, <laughs> by about 10 weeks in, you know, yeah. of what ended up being a, I don't, know, I, don't know, I don't know what the ultimate schedule was at the end. Certainly, I was there for 17 weeks of shooting plus preparation and stuff. Mm. I, don't know what, I don't know how much it went on. I can't remember now how much it went on after that. It was a long time. 
I get the impression though that he he did not necessarily pre-plan what he, what he wanted to capture necessarily. I mean, his his motive was not necessarily to make the day like a lot of filmmakers. Not at all. No. Yeah. Absolutely. He had no. I, I don't think he had a. You know. I think his his. Uh, yeah. Well, it, it's an odd thing because you're absolutely right. He didn't. He didn't have. Um, he had no concept or care for. You know what was on, what was on a call sheet and what what was on the schedule and what was supposed to be completed that day or that week or that month. Mm-hmm. Um, it was all about the perfect moment for this to happen and that person to be here with this person and that element to be in in the background and this happened to be here. And there were some huge elements on that picture. I mean, there were some huge, um, you know, huge numbers of people. Uh, obviously, all in very authentic period dress. I mean, just the operation of getting long before you started shooting, just the, the whole the mechanics of getting all these ingredients onto the set in mm-hmm. <laughs> in the right thing, you know, costume and look and everything else. And then, and then, you know, Stanley was notorious for throwing a wrench in the works at that point where he would suddenly decide that this scene that we talked about and rehearsed and planned and had, uh, you know, chosen extras meticulously but for their look, you know, a, you know, a small guy here and a tall woman there and a short fat man there and a balding guy at the end of the table, whatever, you know, we'd pick all those and then literally the morning of shooting it, he suddenly decide to put the scene on horseback and of the two, you know, the players would play on horseback where it was always going to be done sitting at a table. So you'd have things like that would suddenly, mm. suddenly come into it. And that would be on a daily, that would be a daily occurrence. Those sort of wrench, you know, wrench would go into works that we'd, he suddenly, we'd have four options of where to go that day. And suddenly he'd call in the morning with a fifth option because it was pouring with rain. And he'd mm-hmm. suddenly decide that this certain, some scene might look, be great in the rain. So then you'd have to start the scene in the rain. The rain would stop by the middle of the day, and then you'd have to create special effects rain for the rest of the day. And those are the sort of things that would happen, you know. So, so your your job as as one of the assistant directors, I mean, what did that what did that entail? So wrangling, I mean, you know, finding and wrangling all the crowd, all the extras, <clears throat> and the actors to a certain degree, um, and then. Um, Help moving move this, this sort of veritable army really of of people from one location to the other. So uh, he was obviously a very obsessive person. Mm-hmm. A lot of the vehicles that were some specialised vehicles because he also loved he, he loved gadgets and the latest of whatever. It was the first time I'd ever seen a BL Aeroflex camera, and Stanley operated most of the film camera operated. Um, so he had at one point he had a um, the first time I'd ever seen it used a, a hovercraft as a vehicle for a little tiny hovercraft for a, as a, with a camera mounted on it to try out. He had lots of lots of test equipment to try, and he was obsessed about certain feeling certain things that were the best thing for that job. So he had um, a, a, a little vehicle called a Citroen Mahari that. Is a little like an off-road jeep, French mm-hmm. Citroen, and uh, he was he was 
Adam and all the all the off road tracking scenes with armies marching or whatever would be done off this thing because they had soft, very soft suspension and you know again before the days of custom made vehicles that sort of thing. But during the course of the shooting, this thing got you know moved from location to location to location and, and gradually got broken up and beaten up and someone had broken the gearbox in it and then the engine went and eventually it was just a car. It was just this little French car with no engine and gearbox and the sort of drive shaft held up with string and it was pushed around like a like a barrow with a camera on it because Stanford was still obsessed that this was still the vehicle that you use. Mm. He had funny, very funny. Uh, Obsessions about those things, and one of my one of my jobs that I don't know quite how I inherited it was he had another off-road vehicle, which particularly for scouting locations was a German four-wheel drive thing called a Haflinger. It was Stanley's personal one. He owned he owned lots of the equipment. And he owned lots of uh, lots of the vehicles, and. I, I really don't know how I inherited that job, but anyway, I, I, it was my job to, to drive this to the location every day. So I'd meet him and the first assistant director, and usually John Alcott, and we'd and often Ken Adam, and drive, and then we'd all drive to a some incredibly difficultly remote spot to you know look for, look for a camera position. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how I inherited this job. Maybe because I had a background in driving, but um, so I would often have to drive these strange group of people to the most weird places through mud and you know trees and forest and you know to look for something that might be a perfect sunset or a perfect some perfect position. And yeah. um, but it was a huge pressure because he, you know, I'd have to be there first every morning and so you'd have to it would be this constant drama that the vehicle wasn't going to break down because he was obsessed about anyone breaking down or running out of gas he used to personally check a convoy of probably up to 60 vehicles at times to make sure they all had spare gas cans and tow ropes and all sorts of survival uh, apparatus hmm. he's a very uh, very eccentric character and he he's he's really Kind of has has this almost mythic quality about him now because he he was relatively I mean he had people in his life and he he talked to people every day obviously but for the general public he wasn't out there doing publicity they saw him as reclusive so uh, but in your interactions with him what what were your impressions of him uh, um, to be absolutely frank and honest I, I I didn't particularly like him I had a great friendship. Um, with his daughter, which I don't think he really approved of. It was nothing more than a friendship. Um, but, uh, and so so consequently, I had been to Stanley's house and things like that um, mm-hmm. on, you know, on social, you know, social times. He never openly said that he didn't approve of it or uh, or, or anything like that. But it, I, he was... Uh, he was, he was not a warm. He was not a warm individual at all. And, and now, after you know, nearly forty years in of making movies all over the world, I, I, I personally, and it's not meant at all venomously or nasty. I, I don't feel he deserves the the sort of um, the reverence that mm-hmm. that he gets. And that's 
in context when compared to several other directors of his era who I think did, you know, fabulous work, um, but as you say, were probably more accessible, more yeah. normal, as we'd say, and so consequently maybe didn't create the mystique and the and the the uh, the sort of um, you know the, the sort of myth and the legend. You know, I think yeah. a lot of it was sort of smoke and mirrors, and I think a lot of it was um, he certainly now as I look back, his his mode of operation was certainly to be the only one with some form of order in his own mind in a in a sea of chaos. Mm-hmm. And, he, and, I, and I realized that that's why you could never solve this chaos, because it was being permanently, uh, permanently and intentionally created. He actually, he really did quite like the chaos and the, and the, the sort of ad lib, uh, you know, weirdness and oddity that came out of that, and you know, so, to a certain degree, that there's 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 some brilliance in that. I mean, um, you know, I'm sure he sent most studio execs that ever worked with him, you know, virtually suicidal. But um, <laughs> because I mean, you could hand him a schedule or a school sheet or anything else, and I mean, it would it would have no it would have no bearing on the fact that he suddenly. You know, he might have shot half the scene and then want to recast the actor and fly someone in that he knew who was halfway across the world. So, I mean, that, that's mm-hmm. the thing that happened, you know. Did that extend to his, uh, as you observed it, his relationships with the actors, his communication with the actors? How, how was that? Um, they treated him with a lot of reverence. He was a very distant sort of cold guy though you know he didn't um he had a he had a he had a he had a, a, an odd outer layer that was uh that was uh, a job to see past you know whether it was self-obsession whether it was uh just a general obsession with detail and and therefore a, a lack of overall sort of uh picture of the thing but he he didn't mm. he didn't he was not a he's not a guy for idle chatter or although occasionally he would come out with some you know some rent rendition of a tiny story or whatever you know but it, it was not he's not someone that you'd uh you know if he was alive now and you think you're gonna have to do a six hour car ride with him something you i personally think, oh my god it'd be awful you know <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's something that's been uh, th- that I've heard of of him too. It's it, it's a criticism that some people say that he was so involved with the minutia, with the smallest yeah. detail, that he, he he might have lost picture of the whole. You know. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, you know, and and you know, there's, there's I mean, at the time, there's things that were incredibly frustrating, and and especially for a young kid, you know. Like I was, and difficult to understand. But there was also some very funny moments too. I remember one day, you know, we were in the middle of nowhere in, in Ireland, some, you know, somewhere near Killarney, in the middle of, you know, beautiful rolling hills and, you know, idyllic, uh, sort of royal painting of a of a setting, and um, we're doing some in some scene with Ryan and uh, I can't think who else it was on the on the hill, 
and uh, suddenly this music, and it's uh, you know it was something really incongruous like David Bowie or something. You know, mm. Suddenly came booming through the through the sort of whole landscape, and so everyone was sent off in every direction to find out what you know what the hell is making this. You know, this obviously stopped the whole scene, and um, after much you know searching trying to find the source of the music, it was it was Stanley's wife <laughs> with a Volvo estate. And he, he had them all drive Volvos because he'd done... He had one production manager do nothing but research the safest possible car to drive. So he had all his family only had Mercedes or Volvos, which came up highest on the scale of wherever they did this research. But anyway, he climbed over, the, over a hedge and down into the road, and she, had, who painted... Had had the back door of the Volvo open, was sitting on the tail, you know, sitting on the sort of back under the tailgate, was painting with this music blaring, and now it's taken it's taken you know a few minutes to find to find her, to find the source of it, and to tell her you know to turn it down, stop it, whatever. And so it was it was actually Michael Stevenson, who's a very very funny guy, and he really should you should really call him in England and. Interview him about this because he did, he also did The Shining and he did uh, Full mm-hmm. Metal Jacket with Stanley, but he he um, he eventually sort of reported back to Stanley. By then Stanley's screaming mad, you know, basically you know where the hell you know who the hell was it you know that sort of fire you know having killed or whatever you know who the hell was it and eventually you know and, he, and Michael said well stop that it's, it's okay Stanley it's, it's over no I, you know I want to know who it is who the hell was it who the hell, who the hell? You know, who, who the hell was doing that noise? And eventually, Michael had to say who it was. And Stanley mm. went, turned around and said, "Yeah, it's a, it's a catchy tune, there." <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great. And uh, that's sort of up in a sort of way. Uh, tell me about the lighting, because when you when you think of Barry Lyndon, you think of the the, the shot by candlelight with with natural light as as much as possible. It, it, was that a big feat in the production? Yeah, it was. I mean, I, I remember when we did that candlelit scene in you know the dinner scene or the, or the table scene, you know, in the, in the, and that really was lit by candlelight, you know. And even mm. as a the youngster. Uh, I remember everyone talking about it, and I remember thinking how cool that was, and how, you know, it, that, yes, that, that was certainly a wow moment. And it's odd now that you look back at it that it is is emulated in lots of pictures, and uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it, yeah, it's absolutely beautiful and and very, very um, sort of cutting edge in in and you know very risky in its in terms of. You know, when you think you're on location, so the dailies have to go away and get processed and come back and be seen, and then it could have easily been, uh, you know, absolutely unwatchable. Mm-hmm. And so it was very, it was a very bold move, and, and very, um, it was certainly one of the things that put John Alcott on the map. Um, I want to ask you about John Alcott because whenever I, you know, when I when I think of Kubrick movies, it's they're always the images that come to mind. Those that yeah. that, that, can't, that don't leave your brain and. And Mr. Alcott was obviously a major uh, component of those. Tell me about uh, tell me about him and 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 his relationship with Kubrick as as you observed it. Well, he he was quite a young man at the time, 
Barry Lyndon. I don't know. I, I, I don't know how much he. I don't know what pitches he'd done, to be honest, before Barry Lyndon. But there was a lot of people that. It, it was uh, you know quite a young time in their careers, and John was certainly one of them. I remember thinking at the time that he he, he was a you know a very young man for DP. The other things that I'd done and you know had DP you know the cameramen that were older older gentlemen that were sort of you know revered old guys you know, and John mm-hmm. was certainly not one of those. He was a sort of much hipper, younger. At times grumpy, but but a but a much much younger individual, and he he had a in, obviously an interesting relationship with Stanley because um, Stanley used to operate the camera, although union rules dictated that we have to have a camera operator. But the camera operator used to sit in the van all day. It was a very odd dynamic there. Um, mm. So you'd have the the, the directors also operating the camera, and then the the director of photography, who was designing, who was you know designing the look of the shot, would be then dealing with the director as if it as if he was his uh, you know his uh, his camera operator, sort of you know, someone slightly beneath him almost. You know, so it's a very odd, it was an interesting dynamic there. Mm-hmm. Um, but he certainly there's certainly some beautiful imagery in that movie. Um, and and some you know some some uh, some very very strong and long lasting images. One of those things that you look back on looks good. I, I don't I don't particularly like it as a movie. I don't I don't know I don't think it's that you know I don't think it's that strong a move you know a, a movie as far as a, the 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 tale it has to tell. But uh, but mm-hmm. it's certainly certainly in places extremely beautiful. Yeah. And Stanley knew about. Very much about the 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 image that filled the frame, um, mm. you know, which I think came from his, with his from his still photography, um, and certainly some of it, it's very interesting when you talk to film students that you know, who everyone studies and reveres Kubrick and everything, and they they talk about lots of things, but lots of what they talk about either consciously or subconsciously come down to a a framing or yeah. a, an image that, that, that and I, I think I really do think that Stanley saw the world in still photographs really it was almost an annoyance to him that they had to have actors in them and talking and moving and uh, <laughs> you know they would have to perform feats within these within these frames because what he the, the, certainly you know given a spot card choice of what he'd pick it would be a still photograph it was those are the images that you remember whether yeah. it's you know whether it's Jack Nicholson at the door or uh, or some of those vistas on Barry Lyndon there each one of them you could you know freeze frame and make into a calendar you know yeah you're absolutely right but I would imagine that this being the the, the first big movie that you did as as an assistant director and and uh it didn't give you an accurate portrait of what a film set <laughs> was, no, was going it, no, to be yeah it didn't although although it was it was so absurd in some at some times that it was very obvious that this was not normal you know mm-hmm. um but 
you know, there was also times that afterwards where you'd be on something a lot more mediocre, where you'd realise that no, nowhere near the attention to detail, or you know, Stanley literally would would take a look out over a over a location with John Alcott and say, no, no I don't, you know, I don't like it. And come, we'd maybe come back to that location six or seven times before, it, you know, they felt the light was just right. And at the time, as a kid, I can remember thinking not knowing what the difference was between those days, but then when you see the, the, the perfect day, you know it's the perfect, you know, you know, mm-hmm. oh, wow, that, I get it, that's, that's cool. Um, you know, but can you make movies like that as a business? Absolutely not. You'd, you know, you'd, uh, you know, uh, you'd, there's no studio in town that would touch him and went in with that mentality, you know, unless, unless you were a blockbuster, but he was, um, he was one of those characters that people wanted to have on their on their list of think checkoffs, you know that they that they've worked with. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm lucky to have done that, but I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't say he was one of my favourite directors. I think he did create some beautiful scenes. The effort to get them was far beyond ultimately I think what they were probably worth. But um, he did get some greatness out of some people. Um, and uh, you know, well, you know, certainly a, rare, a rarity. When I when I started the series, I because there is so much reverence for Kubrick. Um, he's he's viewed by by a lot as a, a god among filmmakers. But yeah, that, and, that sort of annoys me in a funny sort of way because yeah. I think, you know I think he's never well I, well not to take anything away from him so much as. Are they are they really are they really referring to the imagery that he created, or are they referring to the the legend of the madness and the obsession, mm-hmm, the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the no color, what, whatever it is, or you know, it's some some whatever it was that day, you know, the seventy five takes of you know the shot in the science shining, you know, the, the steady cam operator couldn't do any more so they came back the next day and they do another 45 takes and in the end he prints take three you know and it's it's sort of you know are they referring to that or are they really referring to his creativeness and it's it's i just think it's sad that people like uh, john sturgis john borman uh, you know uh, even pd yates and certainly uh obviously houston's get got his due but but uh uh, you know John Ford and some of these other people that I think did. You know, when compared, I think did bigger feats of of greatness within the if, if there is such thing as greatness within the uh, movie industry. You know, and they and they were all certainly more productive as oh, as well. Far far far, far yeah. more productive yeah. and, and and certainly more far more user friendly as far as the studio is concerned. <laughs> Well, uh, part of my motive for doing the series is because, I, I mean, I, I've grown to love his, his films, uh, but it's to understand that that reverence because I I, I don't come from a place of, of blind reverence for for Mr. Kubrick necessarily. I, oh, well, I that, feel that, like, that, that makes yeah. that makes me, it, me much more pleased to actually be doing this because I, I it's funny I was saying to someone this morning or and yesterday when I said you know I was going to come do this interview and. I said it's difficult because I ultimately I didn't like I didn't like him very much. I don't think he was a man, you know. 
And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think whether that was because of this huge amount of waste. And there was tremendous waste where we, you know, we 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 just shoot shoot for three weeks on some scene, and then he decided it's not what he really wanted, and recast it and shoot something else, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Or was it because he was not a particularly warm individual, and I was a young guy, and maybe, you know, felt that coldness at times, or whether it, it was, it, or whether it's because I'm not a, a, a massive fan of all of his films. There are certain films that, he's, that he did that I really think are, are great. Are great. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're as great as people talk about them as being. But uh, ultimately, I, I, that's my lasting. Image, sort of image of him is this strange eccentric guy that the the, the the he's almost a legend because of his eccentricities rather than what he really brought to the table. Right. Oh, that's a very, that's a very valid uh, valid observation. But I, I would imagine, and and then I'll let you go. I just wanted to, one more question about about this. Uh, I mean, you've worked on some extraordinary. Film sets. I mean, some some of the yeah. the defining movies of of my generation, and and you know, you're you're on the new Spider-Man film. You you said you're yeah. coordinating for that. Uh, you have to be approached about Kubrick a, a lot from the people you work with, aren't you? I I do, and and um, especially young filmmakers. You know, especially very mm-hmm. young filmmakers that hold him in this mass. You know, there's a, there's a there's a sort of there's a wave of people that went through film school in the 80s, you know, that sort of, you know, and he, and as, as you said, he's, he's, he, to them, he's virtually a god. And, mm-hmm. and uh, generally, it kind of bugs me. I, I'm, I'm more proud of, of being John Borman's assistant director on Hope and Glory mm-hmm. um, than... And P.D. Yates is on the dresser. You know, both Oscar-nominated small films done economically and absolutely beautifully and still hold the the, the, the weight of time now. Um, yeah, they're, they're both stunning movies, absolutely. Stunning stunning movies, done very very economically, very, you know, cost-effectively cost anyway. And, and the uh, beautifully cast, beautifully shot, beautifully made. And they're, they're two, things, two movies I'm extremely proud of because that's you know, a large contribution to them. Um, but those those guys will never be on on the same tier in the film school mentality as Kubrick, mm. you know. And, and and so that sort of thing bugs me. And honestly, given a choice, if I could have if I could take one name off the res you know, one big name director off the resume and add another one on, I would I would trade out Stanley Kubrick for John Sturgis. I did never did a John Sturgis movie and I would try, I would trade those two in a heartbeat if they mm. were trading cards. Well, well, I, I do I do appreciate you talking to me about Kubrick. I mean, uh, this this is valuable valuable insight, and I'm I'm glad that it's going to be a part of a part of the series because a, a big appeal or an interesting aspect of Kubrick is how polarized people are about the man and his movies, and I think that's an important thing to consider. Even even in a tribute series like we're doing, absolutely. I think that I think that's a fabulous thing you're doing because so many so many of these sort of tribute things end up being such a gushing yeah. portrayal <laughs> of, of something that doesn't you know that guy didn't exist sort of thing you know and, you yeah, know and it's, yeah. you, you know for the, for those of us that are around them you go oh, God not another one of those you know it's like. You know. <laughs> 